Burl Bearer. I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Ah, it's not easy being a true crime writer, you know. Ah, a little late for that, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I'm not, not talking about me. But first, let me let you know that this program, True Crime Uncensored, is produced by the beautifully attired and adorably quaffed Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. He looks good in blue. He does. Blue on blue, heartache on heartache. And yes, I am the legendary Burl Bear. The man in the lawyer chair is Don Waldman. Let's delve into the subconscious of every family law attorney and scare the hell out of them. Oh, yeah. I, when I posted uh, who our guest was and what the topic was this week, I said, this is a story that makes Don Waldman very, very nervous. Yeah. <laughs> no, because I've had a lot of experience with this kind of stuff. Oh, well, Gary C. King has a lot of experience writing a incredible true crime books. Uh, Gary, you got a review today on Amazon.com. <laughs> you don't read those, do you? Uh, not too often. Well, is it, is it a reader review? Oh, yeah, they're horrifying usually, but you'll like this one because it says Gary King has a reputation for attention to detail and his investigative skills are without question. When King turns his talents towards a horrific crime, he eschews the cheap road of blood-splattered exploitation and gives us insights into real people, etc., etc., etc. And it says, those of you looking for a mindless gore fest may find King's uh, thoughtful approach, uh, may not care for King's thoughtful approach, and with shock value often overriding journalism in a much maligned true crime genre, King may be too good for the job. But mm. those who appreciate journalistic integrity merged with solid writing skills, rage will be a top priority for purchase. Wow, an intelligent reader. Wow, did Ann Rule write that? Yeah, uh, really. <laughs> <laughs> Ann Rule's one of his biggest fans, uh, as am I. And uh, you actually you have two, two kind of... Two books out simultaneously, one digital, one the old-fashioned way, and the, uh, it's the old-fashioned way right now, Rage. It's the one that has Don Waldman nervous. Well, it's not that it's got me nervous. It just brings back too many incidents that I've seen and experienced, the dark side of family law, where people just lose it. And it's usually a man. Uh, they're in a situation which I would just guess without even talking to you about the facts here. That you got somebody who has a lot of money, he's got children, he's got a wife, and all of a sudden he's being kicked out of his house, he's paying support, he's not having his time with his kids, he's got to raise money to get his wife put out of his business, or he's losing his home, and he's not happy because he perhaps has been a control freak during his marriage, and he can't control what's going on around him in a court. There's a wow, mouthful. What a characterization of Darren Mack. Is it? Great. Well, yeah. that's interesting because I, I, I haven't had the occasion to read the book. I've read a lot about it, but this is the syndrome that I see that spews violence. Yeah. Well, you know, it says right on the back of the book, which I have, it says, Darren Mack had it all, a beautiful home in Reno, a lovely wife, three kids, multi-million dollar business. It would be nice if I got a copy of the book this week, Burl. Uh, yeah, I was going to bring you one last week and I forgot. It but just the subject matter got me yeah. going. Because yeah. I remember the story. Yeah, I'll tell you what, Gary, why don't you bring our listeners up to speed on this story and how you got involved in it? Well, I got involved in it because uh, my editor, Michael Hamilton, and your editor yeah. uh, as well, 
uh, called me one day and, and asked me if I wanted to, to write about this particular case. And, of course, I had been following it a, a bit already. And, uh, honestly, I wasn't going to touch it because it wasn't the gore fest that I'm used to writing about. And, uh, um, I... I mean, I it's not really that you like, like gore fest. I mean, you don't particularly are a blood freak. As distinguished from Butcher where somebody kills 48 people. Right, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, as I delved into it, I, you know, I became more and more interested. And I thought, well, you know, she wants to do the case, uh... I might as well give it a shot, so I did, and uh, that's how I got involved. And then, of course, I I did all the the, the legwork, and uh, you know, I went up to Reno a couple of times and talked to people who would talk to me, and uh, and uh, it was it was quite an intriguing case once once I started, uh, you know, getting into the nuts and bolts of it. Oh, it was all over the headlines at the time. It was, yeah, yeah, it was, and and I I don't know why I get stuck with these books, you know, with the headlines. I actually like to do the more obscure cases. Uh, the books seem to sell better because people really don't know about them yet. Uh, about yeah, sometimes cases. if it's been a high-profile case with lots of media coverage, people think they already know everything. Yeah, I think exactly. you should put this book at the coffee bar in the courthouse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the judges will be impressed. Well, the readers, I mean, the listeners don't know what we're referring to. Uh, Gary, tell us what, what this guy did. Well, Darren Mack was very unhappy about about the divorce with his wife, Sharla. Uh, it was costing him a lot of money, and, uh, you know, his world revolved around money. And he, he uh, developed a very strong disliking for the judge, Judge Chuck Weller, in the case, who uh, almost repeatedly decided, you know, in, in his wife's favor. Um, and he just finally lost it one day. And uh, he lured Charlotte over to his condominium uh, using his daughter, who was watching television upstairs. And uh, um, actually, it was his, uh, his wife who dropped her off that morning, I believe, if memory serves me correct. But at any rate, um, he gets Charlotte outside and finally into the garage, and he, he kills her brutally, stabs her, slashes her. Yeah. Uh, you know, does some really horrible things. There was blood all over the place, and and so I guess in that sense there was a gore fest. Uh, well, that also tells you the rage involved, because as opposed to just putting a bullet in her, he's going to chop her up. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then, uh, you know, he decides afterward he's going to go after the judge, and he had laid all these plans out in advance. He knew what he was doing, and you know, the cops found evidence that uh, you know that he had planned to kill his wife and then go after the judge but uh after uh his house guest who was watching his daughter left uh, darren proceeds to to go downtown reno and he snipes the judge he sniper shoots him from a parking garage about roughly 200 yards away uh right through his chamber's window and I'm not sure whether Darren really intended to kill the judge or not. I kind of suspect that he did. He claims that he did not, that he was just trying to deliver a message. <laughs> What's the message, death? <laughs> <laughs> well, the message. message was the unfairness of the family court system. He was, his, part of his rage was, uh, was centered around uh, the family court system and how, how it ruined families instead of helping them. Well, there, there's something that's inherent as a problem in a lot of these cases, and that's the fact that you, you, you live now in a situation where most states have no-fault divorces, 
and whether your wife has been throwing rocks at you every day, your entire marriage cheats on you, or is a perfect wife, in either case, she's going to probably get approximately half of the assets you acquired during your marriage from your earnings. And most men still think that, hey, I did all the work. Why does she get any of this? Sure. Yeah, I agree. And uh, and it's you know. an inherent problem. I mean, I try to educate clients all the time when you're representing a man in this kind of role that you're not going to win. You can mitigate damages. Yeah. If you're lucky. It's an understandable situation. We were just discussing this concept earlier with our scantily clad producer. And anyone who has been through an unpleasant divorce... With, uh, Maybe it should be the other way. Is there anybody who hasn't been through an unple- unpleasant divorce? Well, I have the very fact that I was divorced was unpleasant at the time. Because most people don't have a good time with it. It wasn't a bad, mine wasn't a horrible time. But I was lucky in that case. But a lot of guys are in that situation where they're, they have a lot of anger. They fight the system. They fight the law. They don't want to accept what's happening around them. And they feel they're getting screwed. Because they well, are. Yeah. Because they are. <laughs> yeah, and, and here's Darren Mack. He makes, you know, 40 some thousand dollars a month from his business. 40000 a month. That's more than the three of us uh, make in a week. Well, yeah, you know, hell. We can't even buy coffee at Starbucks some days. But, uh, you know, forty. I think it was 44000 a month that he claimed to have made. And uh, he stood to lose 10000 a month in alimony to his ex-wife and, and uh, a certain amount of child support, uh, whatever the, the state law required. And... And his million-dollar home, of course, near Carson City. So, uh, I, I assume it was, the home got sold. Uh, eventually, I'm, I'm sure it got sold. It didn't at that time of the killings. I mean, everything was tied up in court for a long time. Even afterwards, there were so many civil civil suits being filed by anybody and everybody. But. Uh, I'm not even sure where it stands right now. And I'm assuming he had exposure to having to pay her a lot of money for her interest in the business. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, you know, there were other issues. Uh, you know, Rolex watches and diamond rings worth lots of money that he brought home from the pawn shop and, and allegedly gave to her. Um, he says his mother later said that they were just on loan. He was partners in the business with his mother. And... uh they wanted them back. You know, that was another issue. But I, I don't think any of that really contributed to his rage so much as as the loss of the monthly income in the house. But uh, Well, there's also a loss of the children from the standpoint if he's working. I'm assuming it's a situation where he really can't be a full-time parent. And now when he comes home, he's coming home to an empty apartment somewhere. True. Uh, but he certainly never thought of the children you know, when he did what he did. and uh, well, No, a, a nice guy, no matter, a guy who really loves his kids doesn't kill their mother. <laughs> no, he's not child-friendly. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Now, this guy obviously would, to amass that degree of wealth, be a successful businessman, etc. The guy's not stupid, I wouldn't think. But no. yet, But yet it crosses his mind, I am going to slash my ex-wife into a thousand pieces... And then I'm going to take a sniper shot at the judge, and everything's going to be fine. I can't believe he would think that way. I mean, now, did, what was his game plan here? Did he only think as far as the act, or did he have a, a plan for after these people are done in? No, I think he had a plan. I mean, he had a to-do list uh, for the killing you know, itself and the, and the sniper shooting of the judge. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, part of the mystery of the story was what happened to Darren after after the killing took place and the judge was shot. Yeah, that's he where it really gets interesting. Yeah, he couldn't be found. 
And you know, Darren Mack had a had a reputation as a as a swinger. He really lived the swinging lifestyle, and that was another issue between. What about his wife? wife? Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Yeah, she was involved in it, you know, for a while. Mutual thing, Uh, but she purportedly got tired of it and wanted out and didn't want to do that anymore. And Darren didn't like that. That was another another issue. But uh, it was not unusual for Darren to run off to Las Vegas or San Francisco or L.A. or any number of places, Mexico. Uh, you know, to uh, engage in in swinging, swingers conventions and and uh, lots of beautiful women and so on and so forth. And but at any rate, after the crimes were committed, he uh, you know he fled and he must have had some idea of a destination in mind. He ended up in uh, a nice resort uh, near Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, and you know he hid out there for a number of days. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the business of tracking him, I mean, he, he fled Reno. They didn't know which direction for sure. Indications were that he was headed for Sacramento. Um, there was an instance at the Sacramento airport where someone using his American Express card <clears throat> went in and out of the, uh, the airport parking garage. That's a good indication. Uh, yeah, and they don't know why unless it was to throw the cops off, you know, off his trail. But uh, he ended up entering Mexico, you know, by car. And he parked it in a parking garage in Ensenada and made his way on down. Uh, Does that mean he had an accomplice? Sounds like him. Well, that was never really determined. It was considered. but uh, Because someone had to use that American Express card in Sacramento. Exactly. But I I kind of suspect that it might have been Darren himself uh, to try to, to make the cops think that he had stopped there to either take a flight or to inquire into a flight, you know, some some such thing. Uh, there are certain elements to the story that have never been satisfied, uh, either in the courts or to my you know, own personal satisfaction, but uh, he was pretty crafty, and I think he knew exactly what he was doing right down to uh, his utilization of his friendship with the district attorney in Reno. Yeah, I was going to mention that. He and the DA were good buddies. Yeah, this yeah. reeks of premeditation. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, there's no doubt. And uh, <clears throat> it's a it's a pretty twisted and convoluted story all the way through. Um, you know, I'm probably getting ahead of myself here. I don't know where you guys wanted to go with this, but uh, right even up through the trial, uh, you know, he he was manipulating things right all all along. Well, that's so characteristic of these guys. What was his ego as big as his bank account? <laughs> they say it was. Uh, unfortunately, I never met him. I I know you know people who did know him, and he's been described as uh, a person with a big ego, but he's also been described as a person with a heart of gold who'd give you the shirt off his back. So, as I long as he made the choice. Yeah. Yeah, that could be it right there. <laughs> yeah. Kindness yeah. as a control issue. Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So tell me a little bit about his relationship with the district attorney. Well, he was longtime friends with uh, Richard Gamick, Dick Gamick. Uh, he'd been district attorney for a long time. <clears throat> and uh, I don't know how deep the friendship was. Uh, if you read the emails and, you know, listen to the phone conversations between Gamick and Darren Mack, uh, well, Mack was on the lam. It seemed like their relationship was pretty solid. But uh, I always, you know, kind of wondered uh, why the, uh, the DA didn't recuse himself sooner. 
you know, from the case because of that. But uh, but he didn't, and that's another story. But uh, but he he had known him for quite some time, and he engaged yeah he engaged Gamic in uh, you know to I guess for information or advice would be a better word uh, about how to handle his divorce and and so on. And, and uh, Gamic had met with him and offered his advice. Obviously, Darren didn't take it. <laughs> no, yeah. I don't think the uh, attorney's going to advise that. Any idea what the advice was? Uh, not really, no. They never did uh, bring that out into the public eye, and Gamic wouldn't talk to me. So, And on top of that, you know, he very well could have had a lot of his assets tied up, counts blocked while this divorce was going on, so he couldn't True. lead the normal lifestyle he was used to. True. Well, then also you have an FBI profiler involved. A real profiler, not one who decides they are, but a real one. <laughs> How'd that come about? Yeah. <laughs> well, I get a lot of people these days calling themselves profilers, and as our friend uh, Kathleen Ramsland said, the pro- real profilers work for the FBI. <laughs> you can't just wake up one morning and call yourself one. Uh, Clint Van Zant, FBI profiler, gets involved in the case. Primarily, just to help out the uh, Reno 911 folks. Is this after he disappears? I assume. Right. right. Yeah, he. I think it was right after he disappeared, if I remember correctly. Uh, and you know, Van Zant's profile was so-so. I wouldn't call it, you know, 100 percent by no, by any means. Uh, few of them are anyway. But. Uh, well, I think it's a very telling thing here in the book about Van Zant doing an analysis of this crime. And he says, if his analysis was correct, I'm quoting from your book, Mac was an anomaly. Here was a guy who had allegedly committed a violent murder while in an emotional state of mind, certainly not characteristic of an organized killer, then regained his calm demeanor and went on to carry out the attempted murder of the judge after having coffee in the company of his daughter and an old friend from high school. Now he fits the characteristics of an organized killer. I mean, it's like these two different things. Plus the guy was a former big game hunter. So pulling off a sniper. Oh, so now that explains the sniper, the rifle. Yes, uh, as Matt says, he's not a bad guy except for the murders. (laughs) (laughs) And, well, I'm I'm not sure what your point is is about the profiler, but uh, he, you know, he definitely um, hit both sides of the coin. Yeah, well, this was was my point. We're used to to dealing with murderers who, uh, you know, who snap who just lose it and in a fit of rage, which is the title of Gary's new book, uh, do these insane, violent, slashing murders. And simultaneously, you have a cold, calculated sniper shot by a big game hunter with his game being the judge. You don't usually see those two combined together. No, you don't. Usually, they're, they're either one or the other. Um you don't see the elements of both. Um, most times they're either organized or disorganized. And uh, um, Darren seemed to be mostly organized, although the uh, the killing at the uh, at the condominium of his wife. Well, that was, that's pure rage, obviously. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, you know, she was outside. The garage door was op- open, uh, potentially in view of of the neighbors. Uh, so. Obviously, the attack had to occur while the garage door was open because she wasn't supposed to go inside the house by order of the court. We've got to so take a quick... Uh, Gary, Scott, sorry to interrupt you, pal. We've got to take a quick 60-second break. We'll be back and hear about death in the garage. Why didn't anyone notice? We'll be right back. 
There's only one thing worse than children who kill. The mother who made them do it. Mom said kill. The mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. I'll tell you one thing. The kid never got the dirt bike. Mom, Mom said, said kill by legendary true crime writer Burl Bear. Available now wherever fine books are sold. From Pinnacle True Crime, Mom Said Kill. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. Now available in the iTunes App Store. And now, back to True Crimes with Burl Bear and Don Wolden. I love that iPhone uh, apps uh, commercial or message that we have on there, although I can tell Lori Daddy Jr. had a toothache when she did that one. <laughs> Bless her heart. You, you were mentioning that uh, you've got a profiler here, and yet I kind of wonder why. They know who did it. They assume they have to know pretty much why he did it. How did the profiler come into it? Well, he kind of came in right out of nowhere, in, in my opinion. I, I never did fully ascertain how he got himself involved, uh, other than the, the likelihood that he was just offering, you know, his assistance, his opinion. Um, As to where he I, went, I maybe, or what? Yeah, possibly. And, and they may have asked him. I don't recall how I characterized him in the book, because I, you know, it's been over a year now, but, uh, uh, you know, since I wrote it, but... Uh, I don't know. I just thought he kind of came out of nowhere, and I didn't really see the need for him either because they usually use profilers to try to find out who the unknown suspect is or at least the characteristics of the unknown suspect. But uh, there he Well, was. I think that uh, one of the reasons that he came in or made himself useful, and by the way, if you just joined us, we're talking to Gary C. King, one of the world's most notorious true crime writers. His new book is Rage. And... Uh, <laughs> I'm just impressed that he used to write for True Detective, which I remember as a kid. On, Ooh, you, know. you were thought you were really getting away with something reading that, didn't you, Don? Oh, it was great <laughs> stuff. That was the ultimate thing to read in the barbershop. You know? <laughs> yeah, that way I love that notorious label. Yeah, you like that one, huh? Yeah. Well, we'll see, one of the difficulties of the case, according to Gary C. King, was attempting to determine whether the killer was organized or disorganized. And... Uh, that's one reason the uh, uh, the guy came well, in. Uh, from the outside looking in, I vote for organized after the crime of rage with his wife. And I wonder, who will know unless we ask the guy, uh, was it purely rage or did he have a to-do list on, you know, on such and such, I'll have the garage door open. And well, I'll... he's not trying to hide his identity when he's doing this. He's not trying to cover his tracks. No. So, I mean, he probably figured people are going to know I sliced my ex-wife to a thousand pieces. They're always the first suspect. Well, absolutely, and, and I, I, I agree, but it, I do believe he tried to cover his tracks for a while as to, to where his destination was. Oh, yeah, identity. yeah. Uh, but as to his identity, no, nah, he knew that the, they would know who he was immediately, and 
and that uh, they'd put two and two together and figure out that he's the one who, you know, shot shot the judge as well. Yeah, his whole plan had to be his exit plan. Yeah, and uh, they did find the to-do list, you know, on his kitchen table, so... Oh, how convenient! In case there was any doubt of my plans, buy ammo, <laughs> adjust scope. Jeez. And then there's the question of Osborne's dog. Did uh, did you read the, about his dog, Burl? Uh, I remember it vaguely uh, barks in my memory. Uh, yeah, was, it, was it confusing to you? The dog, yeah, I had a hard time communicating with the dog. Explain about the dog. Yeah. Well, the dog, um, you know, uh, was in uh, Max Friend's car. His name was Osborne, not the dog, but the friend was named Osborne. Yeah. And uh, he got out of the car because Osborne had left the windows down, but... Uh, he somehow got into the garage, had to go in while the garage door was up before Mac dragged Sharla in and, you know, committed the bloody carnage and closed the garage door so the dog didn't go back outside. Oh. But instead went up the stairs from the garage to the inside of the condominium, uh, followed Mac upstairs after Mac had killed Sharla. And the dog, of course, was covered with blood, and, and, uh, and they noticed this. Um, well, didn't right Mac away. notice his dog, bloody dog, following around the condo? <laughs> yeah, the uh, the friend noticed this right away, and he knew, you know, something. He immediately knew something was wrong. And uh, uh, at any rate, um, that was when he decided to pack up and take the girl and, and head out. While Mac probably, you know, did whatever cleaning up he had to do, and before he left to go, call his friend to meet him, you know, for a cup of coffee to kind of sort things out, but. But there seemed to be some confusion about the dog and how he got out of the vehicle and all that. But you know, I, I don't, I don't particularly see it personally. Uh, uh, I was just curious if you guys noticed. Mm-hmm. I had a friend tell me that he didn't understand the also uh, the dog situation. But. Part of the crime involving the judge, to me, is a extension of the security systems now that we have in the courts. It used to be that you came into a court and you would see a sign that said no. Weapons, knives, or shorts, and that was the security system. And now they've got metal detectors uh, because they got tired of situations where, and I've witnessed shootouts in the court, people getting shot, knifed, stabbed, you name it, until they finally put in the metal detectors, and they pretty much have stopped it. Yeah. And so he had no choice if he was going to go after this judge but to do it from the outside. Exactly. I'll tell you that the security systems are so tight now. When I went up to, uh, to uh, Anchorage for a sentencing of uh, Lizard Gustafson and Smiley Cheely, how do you like those for names? <laughs> You're kind of people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that, that's a book that never came out. Uh, and you call me notorious. <laughs> right. Yeah. Among other words, right? <laughs> uh, I went through the metal detector and it went off because, uh, what was that, a piece of juicy fruit gum in my pocket or something? Well, the metal detectors in the L.A. court are so sensitive that... If I take everything and put it into the basket and whatever, it still goes off because I have a metal belt buckle. It's oh, yeah. that sensitive. Well, my, well, actually, what it was was the uh, the metal or aluminum wrapper uh, inside the pack of cigarettes is what set it off. That's how sensitive it was. I'm sorry that the fillings of my teeth could have done it. <laughs> but, yeah, if you're going to kill a judge, folks, you can't do it in the courthouse. That's, nope. you, that's what you learned from listening to our program today. So the guy uses a hunting rifle, high-powered, big game. Yeah. A Bushmaster, yeah. And uh, I, I just, as an aside to the security issue, I, I loved how the politicians jumped onto the bandwagon and tried to 
you know, bring in more money for additional security measures uh, when, you know, Mac didn't even commit his crime inside the courthouse. You know, he did it from 200 yards away. Well, he could put a bulletproof glass in the building. Yeah. Yeah, you put, start putting a bank heavy. glass around the building. That's about the only thing else you could do to yeah, prevent kind of, this. the kind they put in jewelry cases. Yeah. Well, that was discussed, you know, because Harry Reid got involved and a bunch of other politicians and so forth. But, you know, in actuality, it's pretty rare that members of the judiciary are actually killed or wounded. I know that the, the threat of violence and the potential is there, and a few of them have been attacked and killed over the years. But, you know, overall, does it really warrant anything more than they're doing right now? I, well, I know from personal experience, at least of one judge back in the 70s when I first started to practice, he got on the bench and he had a pistol under his robe. <laughs> that was supposed to be, smart. nobody was supposed to know that. Yeah. Well, then there was also the guy that had the vacuum stuck under his robe. I remember. Well, that that's one. a different problem. <laughs> Is that legal yeah. for the judge to do that? No, it's not. <laughs> no, not the vacuum stuck under the guy. he's got some kind of a permit. <laughs> yeah, to go before like a judge a, to get one, though. Yeah, it sounds like a good true detective story. The vacuum suck. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, I kind of got off track. Yeah, well, we do that to we our guests, Gary. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's all right. So, how did they track this guy down? Uh, basically, they, you know, used as many resources as they could, including the FBI, and everybody was looking for him at airports and border crossings, but nobody could find him. Uh, he eventually, and I don't know why he did this, but he eventually called the DA's office in Reno from Mexico and and uh, wanted to set up a surrender. I, they really had no idea where he was at. And why he decided to do that with $36,000 cash in his suitcase and only having been gone like, you know, 11 days or so. You mean he had, he had feelings of remorse all of a sudden? Maybe. I mean, it, it didn't. I didn't have that feel that I normally get, you know, when I, I sense remorse uh, in dealing with these kinds of people and writing about them. But uh, that's the only thing that you can reasonably assume, I guess, is he decided that he wanted to come back and and face the music but uh, um, anyway he ended up calling to answer your question he ended up calling the DA's office and uh, basically gave them an idea where he was at without giving them an exact location and started negotiating a, a surrender deal it seems to me he was afraid he was going to get gunned down yeah he was a little bit worried that uh, that, he, that he would be gunned down if he you know if the authorities came across him and and I think part of his surrender might have been uh, fear of, you know, rotting away in a Mexican jail if he was ever caught down there. Um, you know, extradition treaty, they, they don't have to extradite you if you face the death penalty. That's exactly uh, right. Yeah. And uh, the alternative would be them keeping him in a Mexican jail or letting him go. So I don't think they'd let him go, but you never know in Mexico. So what, a Mexican jail could be worse than death. Yeah. Yeah, so maybe that was a fear that played on him. And, you know, again, this is this is supposition on my part. I don't know. I couldn't get inside his mind, but uh, but for whatever reason, he he wanted to come back and face the music, and he even asked for the death penalty. I don't know if that was just drama on his part or or what, but uh, but uh, you know, here's a guy with all this money, and he could have went anywhere. I guess he didn't want to spend the rest of his life in a six by eight foot cell. Well, that's what he's doing. <laughs> Northeastern Nevada. <laughs> oh, a lot of people like Northeastern Nevada. 
No, I, yeah. I think I, I can't remember the name. I know the name of that. It's, it's, a, it's a funny sounding name, but it's it's a hellhole. It's in Ely, I believe. That's it. That's it. Yeah, yeah it's over next to the Great Basin National Park. Uh, maybe he has hopes of escape one day and in, into the national park. Uh, who knows? But uh, it's a far cry from what he was used to in his million dollar home on the other side of the state. What was he sentenced to? Life. Yeah, it, it, it's it's essentially life. It was like thirty four or thirty six years with another twenty you know year sentence on top of it. Uh, given his age, um, you know, it's it's essentially a life sentence. Yeah, he's he's found a home. Yeah. Well, one thing you know, he said the reason he he took the shot at the judge is he wanted to send a message, and the message wasn't just look, I can shoot a judge. It had to do with how pissed off he was. Uh, at uh, the family court system, and he wanted to draw attention to it. Apparently, he was very successful in doing that. How so? We got a hell of a lot of publicity. Well, that we know, but how did he affect the system? Well, I don't know if he affected the system so much, but from what I, I'm reading in Gary uh, C. King's new book, Rage, available wherever fine books are sold, <laughs> I plug that in there, is that uh, people who uh, had been... To, critical of the family court system or had reservations about it, suddenly were crawling out of the woodwork, calling it a divorce factory, and being highly critical of the functioning of the family court system in Nevada. Boy, I wish I knew the specifics on this. He, he had uh, potential at possibly affecting change, or at least, or at least getting people to think about the alleged corruption or the corruption that he perceived uh, that existed within the family court system. He had followers. You know, he got on TV shows, radio stations. He was on the Internet, you know, web shows, web blogs, etc., along with his friends. And they were, you know, telling about their experiences and how unfair they were and so forth and gaining a certain amount of sympathy. But when he did what he did, you know, he effectively destroyed any hope of uh, credibility towards what he was trying to accomplish in getting, you know, in getting on his message. We're going to take a quick 60-second break. We'll be right back with more from acclaimed and notorious, irascible author Gary C. King on True Crimes Uncensored. There's only one thing worse than children who kill. The mother who made them do it. Mom said kill. The mother, Barbara Opal, promised her 14-year-old daughter a brand new dirt bike if she and her little friends would murder her employer. I'll tell you one thing. The kid never got the dirt bike. Mom, Mom said, said kill, kill by legendary true crime writer Burl Bear. Available now wherever fine books are sold. From Pinnacle, true crime. Mom said kill. If you own an iPhone or ride a plastic pony in front of Albertsons, you are no longer tied to your computer. You are now free to roam while Barstow's burning and take Outlaw Radio with you everywhere you go. Grab an Outlaw Radio iPhone application, the smoking, drinking, interrupting 24-hour party that you follow now follows you. Your iPhone is now the easiest way to stay connected with your friends at Outlaw Radio. Change the way you listen to the radio seven days a week. 
Now available in the iTunes App Store. Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. I am the legendary Burl Bear, man of the lawyer chair, family law attorney. Don Nervous Wolf. family law attorney. Don Wolfman. I hate this topic. Gary C. King, author of the new book, Rage, A Frenzy of Murder and Bloodshed, where this charming, wealthy gentleman, Darren Mack, Things don't go well in the divorce proceedings. Kills the wife, then goes after the family law judge. As a quick aside, my first year into practice, what goes on is there's a... Down the hall is a family law attorney, and I hear a shot. A irate husband came into the wife's lawyer and shot him in the stomach. Ouch. In his office. Wow. And uh, that's when I knew I was never going to do family law. <laughs> That's why he decided to stay in his office in Santa Monica and hide under the desk with a bag over his head. <laughs> good career move. <laughs> That's how he wound up on this show. We have very high standards. <laughs> I, took a, I took a gun away from a client of mine that was going to shoot her husband in a deposition. I mean, it just... It doesn't yeah, happen him. often. She but wasn't going to shoot him right in his deposition, was she? <laughs> she was going to put it right in the deposition. Hmm? Well, you left out that you have irascible authors on your show. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when was the last time you were called that in public? So I want to hear, what are they, I can't uh, remember. how well, do they try to change the well, court I'm, system I'm here? I'm looking here at Chapter 14, and uh, Gary has his book, he can follow along. Uh, says, those who thought unfavorably about the system argued there was little on the books that could be used to hold judges accountable for their actions, basically, if they screwed up or went went wrong. In, uh, well, we, in don't, we don't have law. courts of appeal anymore. We don't have transcripts and well, records. It, That's it, crazy talk. It says that the, the Nevada Commission on Judicial Discipline had received nearly 1,700 complaints over uh, an unspecified 10-year period, and they'd handed down only 20 orders of punitive proceedings. Why? The people asked one reason. Commission lacked adequate funding. Well, the more vocal opponents said it lacked courage and moral fiber. Now, whether he'd been treated unfairly or not, uh, Darren Mack obviously believed uh, that he had been. Now, the Paul Mosen, I don't know if you uh, spoke to Mosen personally, but in, in your book, Gary, he's a spokesperson for Nevadans for Equal Parenting. Uh, he felt uh, that uh, Darren Mack, who'd been involved with the group, had felt ineffective and helpless in the courtroom. A question for you, Gary. Did you have the opportunity of talking with the attorneys for the wife and for Mac? No, I didn't. Uh, That's too bad. There, there were so many civil lawsuits flying back and forth that that I couldn't get anybody to talk to me. It's uh, it frustrating it really, as hell. It, it's frustrating. You know, the city attorney in Reno helped me uh, as much as he could. He tried to, to even get the cops to talk to me, but... Uh, it was just everybody was afraid to talk, I believe, because of all the civil lawsuits that were still pending. Um, but for whatever reason. Um, well, I know. think one of the, the insightful statements in your book, and I can't recall it was by you or by one of the, the people you were talking to, is that usually, and Don, you can say yay or nay to this, <laughs> and that is in family court and another court situation, it's usually the person with the most money wins. Darren had the most money, but things were not going his way. And that really just drove him nuts. There's a little bit of the truth to that, but n not a lot. Depends on how sophisticated the court system is, because they try to equalize it by making the husband pay enough so the wife can defend herself against these top-notch lawyers that he has. Or unless it's the other way around and she's the one with the top-notch lawyers. And it lawyers. can be. You probably had those. 
Sure. I, sure. I was really hoping that the the, uh, the victim's mother, Charlotte's mother, would provide some really useful information. She provided some, but but she was really reluctant to talk as well, because um, she's you know supposedly doing her own book, and her attorney advised her not to even provide me photos. So as a result, yeah, I was going to ask you about that. There isn't a single photo of the victim in uh, in your book. Not one. I, I mean, they're they're out there. They're on the internet. Uh, we could have stolen one, but you know how that goes. Nobody wants to uh, to try to do that nowadays because of the copyright, you know, infringements. But uh, uh, if it had been true detective, they would have had a photo. But uh, <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But uh, they it all hinged on the family, and the family would not release any photos to me. Uh, uh, what about crime scene thing? photos? What's what's the status if I ever write a book about Nevada? There what's, was some great crime scene photos. I got my hands on, on probably close to a dozen, and we couldn't use them because the police wouldn't sign off on it. Kensington, the publisher, you know, now requires that uh, you get a yay or a nay from the, the police department before they'll use the crime scene photos, which I think is, is an outright shame because they end up being uh, public information. Yeah, I'm assuming these crime scene photos were used in the trial. Yeah, but Kensington's rules are as they have been explained to me, that they will not use them unless the police department will sign off on them, uh, either verbally or in writing. And in, in this particular case, they wouldn't do either. Uh, the city attorney really tried. He bent over backwards trying to get, you know, some help there, you know, to get these photos. But yeah, I've run into similar situations. Uh, if you do a book in uh, Washington State, they have, of course, it's a, it's a time factor. Once, after a certain number of years, the photographs belong to whoever has them in their hand. <laughs> That's a nice rule. And therefore, if you have, this is their way around it, of, of not having to give permission. Uh, the attorney said, here's how it works. If you have the pictures, they're yours. <laughs> you know, they do things differently up there. And, and when I was in the Northwest, I never had any problems. Uh, I could walk into a police department and get interviews with anybody I wanted to. Uh, they welcomed me, you know, to come in. They'd give me photos right out of the case files, uh, and we would use them in True Detective and, and in some of the books. Uh, you know, when I did the book on Dot, Driven to Kill, I was there interviewing a detective for a Cop of the Month story for True Detective, and he says, hey, we've got Dot upstairs. You want to go up and see him, interview him? I said, sure, why not? <laughs> So they put me in an interview room with him. I spent three and a half hours in there, and, uh, you know, he ended up becoming a book. But, uh, you know, that's just how things work in different states. Yeah, it's, it's real crazy. I think it, I, it seems really strange because today you have prosecutors calling press conferences, and uh, I, don't, I don't get it. Nevada's always been really tight-lipped. Uh, I don't know why. Um, Maybe they just don't like me personally. Maybe I rubbed them the wrong way when I did the Binion book. I don't know. That maybe they were embarrassed it. by the story. Yeah, maybe. Um, you know, I said some things in an almost perfect murder that might have pissed them off, too. But uh, <laughs> That's I a problem. Uh, <laughs> I'll tell you, you, you never know what... Uh, I think I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. I was going to do a book about Kansas, uh, Kansas, Kansas, uh, and discovered that under the public disclosure laws, if you want the... Uh, police files you ask for them and what you get is the cover sheet well that's wow. good <laughs> yeah that's helpful so that you know there are files somewhere yeah and then <laughs> anything beyond that is at the personal discretion of the law enforcement personnel if they decide they like you yes if they decide that they sounds like a locked door to me yep. when i met or when i when i wrote bloodlust i met the lead detective 
in downtown Portland in a parking garage. He called me up one day and asked me if I wanted the case files. I said, sure. Where do you want to give them to me at? He set you know, the site downtown, and we went there and met, and he surreptitiously unloaded five or six boxes from the trunk of his car and placed them into the trunk of my car and says, keep them until you're finished. Wow. I mean, it just goes to show you that, you, you know, every jurisdiction is different. And uh, I decided that after the current book that I'm working on, I'm going to look outside of Nevada. <laughs> <laughs> I would I would suggest that, judging for the amount of opposition you seem to be getting down there. It yeah. gets a little rough. Well, that's one thing I learned uh, years ago, and maybe this is the problem you live there, is uh, it's not necessarily safe to do a true crime investigation where you live. Yeah. Because what they fear, the law enforcement, and sometimes rightfully so, is that you're going to uncover something on the local level that they do not want exposed. But I never had that problem in Oregon and Washington. I lived up there. I lived in Oregon, and I was back and forth between those two states all the time. You know, my first several books involved the Pacific Northwest, and uh, and I, you know, wrote 300 or so stories, uh, half of which were in that area, and never had that problem. But, uh, again, you just never know. Now, to tell you, one was incredibly cooperative was uh, Alaska. Uh, it just amazingly so. The prosecutors, the police, uh, when I did the uh, Kirby Anthony case, murder in the family, they just gave me everything. And the former head of the, uh, the homicide task force spent hours and hours with me. And when I had to get the <laughs> the uh, the transcripts, right, because I wanted to read all that stuff, and sometimes they can charge you. In case you don't know this, Don, a king's ransom, small Balkan king, but a king nonetheless, a king's ransom to get this stuff. A dollar a page if it's been transcribed, five dollars a page if it hasn't. Imagine if you have several trials, mistrials, etc. How much money this can cost, Gary or I, if we're doing a Who book? sets these rates? Well, you know, the thing to do is look at the directory of the, of the, the uh, transcript and pick and choose what you want rather than yes. do the whole thing. But, uh, yeah, I went up in a situation where so I said, why didn't you have more information on this such and such aspect of the trial? I said, I couldn't afford it. Yeah. I paid $1,000 for transcripts once. Yeah. Uh, I've also gotten them for free. So you, well, you never... Yeah, that was the situation in Alaska. Is the, the guy runs off all this stuff for me at the courthouse, and I said, what do I owe you? And he, he smiles and says, I think a ream of paper is 12 bucks." Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Love that guy. Yeah. They're going to charge you by I've the page wanted, here. I've always wanted to do a story there, you know, set in Alaska. But uh, I had one picked out once, but uh, the publisher didn't want to do it because they just said they wouldn't be able to sell enough books in that state. Uh, I don't know what their reasoning is because we sell books all over the country and in Canada. You know, the strange thing is Murder in the Family, which is an Alaska case, has been one of my best-selling books. They released it again just this year. Do, wow. do books where the uh, the crime takes place in big cities sell better? They seem to think so. Except they, for they, New York. Yeah. Except they, for New York? Oh, yeah. How I does ha- that work? I don't know. Well, I'll tell you, I had uh, a homicide detective get hold of me who had cracked a serial killer case. I think it was Long Island or something. Uh, says, I just cracked this great serial killer case. The guy's been sent away. I've got the entire case files, everything, give it to you on a silver platter. And it was it was a great, I mean, just sort of everything you'd want in a serial killer case for a book. And the publisher said, nope, Miss New York. Wow. And uh, 
It's a hard sell. People just assume that people are serial killers in New York. If it's Washington State or if it's uh, Midwest or Texas, oh, then they want it. New York, oh, that, they think it happens all the time. Yeah. Huh. I haven't heard that. Yeah, it's a strange one. <laughs> um, I, you don't have to have any good spare murders, do you, Gary? I'm, I'm up for another contract. And <laughs> yeah, I'm still looking for another one uh, when I finish the one I'm working on. But, the, uh, the judge in this case, he survived the shooting, didn't he? He did survive, yeah. Any ability to talk to him? I tried to. I, t I got through to his assistant, you know, his assistant, and uh, uh, they, they shot me down. You know, immediately. Nice choice yeah. of words. Yeah. <laughs> well, guy didn't yeah. want anything to do with it. Didn't want anything to do with it. So. Yeah. Uh, now, you know, think that I mean, no one comes off bad in this book except, of course, Darren Mack. Yeah. Uh, I don't know why they would be uh, be concerned. It's very frustrating, you know, from the standpoint of being the, the writer, because. You know, half the work that goes into this is in the research, and if you can't get good sources, you have to rely on public sources and media sources, and and mistakes are often made, and, and so on and so forth. But uh, you would think they would want to cooperate if for no other reason than to get the facts straight. Um, but it, it was very frustrating. This, this was one of the most frustrating cases that I've ever worked on. In fact, I was... Uh, about six months late, I believe, on delivering the manuscript on this one. You know, there were personal issues. I had deaths in the family and so on and so forth. But there were also these issues of nobody wanting to talk. That delayed it considerably. Oh, yeah. That's hard. Yeah. yeah. And there, there's nothing worse, besides being a true crime writer, than and maybe it's the same with any kind of nonfiction writer, that feeling, as I did for a while on Fatal Be that I was the phrase our mutual editor used was Pearl, I get the feeling you feel you're drowning in the manuscript. <laughs> I said, boy, you hit the nail right on the head. Yeah, well. There are times we just got to sit back and go, okay, am I taking this serious thing far too seriously? Do you end up with a book that's a thousand-page manuscript that you got to cut down or what? You know, that happened once to a famous crime writer, uh, uh, the author of uh, Small Sacrifices, no less. I heard through the grapevine that she turned in an 1,100-page manuscript and was told to cut it down to 600 before they publish it. So Boy, she must have got carried away on that one. So that, that's yeah. interesting that she's talking about our, our mutual friend and acquaintance, uh, Ann Rule. Yeah. Well, anything and everything you want to know about Ann Rule, but we're afraid to ask. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, there's a strange synchronicity is that my family is in one of her books and she's in one of my books. No kidding. Yeah, her oh. book, uh, Dead by Sunset. Uh, I remember that one. Yeah, that uh, the, the guy who committed the murder, he murdered a woman who worked for my brother's law firm. And the, uh, the guy was a photographer and the pictures of my brother's kids hanging on the wall in my brother's home were taken by the, by the murderer. Wow. That's not nice. And so, Stop obviously, uh, the the name Bear shows up uh, quite frequently in the book. Simultaneously, my book, Man Overboard, The Counterfeit Resurrection of Phil Champagne, uh, Phil Champagne's daughter and Ann's daughter were best, or are uh, best friends, and uh, it was Ann who uh, uh, suggested that I write the book because she was booked up, so to speak. Wow. Well, that was nice of her. It was. Yeah. I actually competed with her on Murder by Sunset. I wanted to... Uh, do that case. I was living up in Oregon at the time, and I had actually ordered some of the transcripts for that case because I was so sure that I could get a contract for it. 
but as soon as the word came, you know got out that Ann Rule was doing it, nobody wanted to touch it. Nobody wants to go up against Ann Rule. Uh, yeah. But uh, I would like to have given that one a shot. That was a good case. Guys, yeah, isn't that a horrible thing for us to say? That was a good case. <laughs> yeah, well, I should say it was an interesting case. Yeah. What's on the horizon for you now? Well, I'm currently working on the murder of Brianna Dennison co-ed up in uh, Reno, of all places again, where the cops won't speak. Well, you don't learn your lesson. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. I'm a glutton for punishment. God, what are we going to do with you, Gary? Come on. Yeah, I know. But, but i tell uh, you what. I'll find one over here, and maybe they'll talk to me because they don't know me. <laughs> I'll do that case and you do another one. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know what's, what's after that. Uh, you know, after I finish that book, I still have one more to do, and... And then I'm probably going to take a little break and uh, try my hand at some other things. Yeah, we or... were to, Gary and I were talking uh, with our, another guest we've had on the show, Kevin Sullivan, who wrote the uh, the Bundy sure. book. Sure. Uh, we, you know, we have these little conversations on Facebook because he's my friend. <laughs> yeah. And people can chime in. And what about a novel? That's what we were talking about. Gary was asking, should I try fiction? But you know, you're you're weighed with the the question of, well, do I want this paltry advance for something that I have to write the complete manuscript for first and then mm -hmm. hope that it sells and does well in the marketplace to earn royalties, or do I take this better advance just for signing a contract and hope that I can produce the book and get people to talk to me and find all the information I need and then, you know, work your ass off to finish it and then hope that it makes some money beyond the advance. But, you know, the advances are quite different. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You know? Oh, yeah, big difference. Okay. And as also, as, as I mentioned in our conversation, that there is a psychological, I mean, it becomes both a, a gift and a, uh, a curse, and that is when you've got a contract with a major publisher for two, three, four books, whatever, such as we'll, we'll do with, uh, with Kensington Publishing, yeah. we know we are professional authors and we have a career. Hi, this is true crime writer Gary C. King with Don Wolben and Burl Bear, right? And I can right. say, yes, I'm a professional author. I have a contract with Kensington Publishing. And I know what I'm making, even if it's not enough to, <laughs> to do much, but I, it, I, it's a valid career. Well, maybe I'm naive, but can't you do both? Well, yeah, but true crime books are so time-consuming. It takes so much of your time to do the research and to write these things that it doesn't leave you a lot of time to be writing fun-loving fiction and hope you can sell it. So you do get in this bind. I'm sure you remember Jack Olson, who was one of the, the great nonfiction writers of all oh, time. Oh, yeah. Used, used to talk to him all the time. Yeah. He was actually a friend. Yeah, a friend of mine, too, and a great guy and a mentor and very encouraging. And he, he said to me, this is shortly before he died, it's not the reason he died, but he said, Burl... Get out of true crime while you can, huh. <laughs> or you'll wind up like me. And I said, if I could write as well as you, I'd be perfectly happy. He says, no, I don't mean that. <laughs> he never told me to actually get out of it, but he was always trashing the genre. Oh, I know. They used to bug me. <laughs> yeah, he told me true crime was dead, and uh, you know, he used to call me up on the phone and talk about salmon fishing, true crime, and Ann Rule. But uh, <laughs> yeah, same thing. Not necessarily in that order, right? <laughs> Thank you for a sleepless night. His book, Butcher, but it killed about 48 people, is now available as a digital edition for download, I believe, on Barnes & Noble. How about that? Light reading. Yeah. And so his mom said kill. And in the digital edition, <laughs> the kid still doesn't get the dirt bike. <laughs> uh, Magic, Matt Allen, the Demons of Decadence. Coming, coming up. up. Live. Yeah. Whoa.
They'll be rocking and rolling. They'll be bopping and strolling. They'll be doing some high profile and call. Whoa! I say, I say, pardon me, miss. Are you doing anything tonight? If not, I'd like to bend you over and drive. 